With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is me talking to you. Um, so I'm talking to you from a not entirely undisclosed location, but I'm in Maine, uh, near New Hampshire. Uh, we love it out here, although I could do without the heat wave. We drove all day with the dogs. Um, the original plan was to bring the cat, too. She still may come, but she'll probably come with my daughter when she comes later um, in the week. And uh, it was a very long day, and I don't know if the technology here is going to work for this podcast. So I apologize if this podcast never airs, but does an apology exist if you offer it and no one hears it? I don't know the answer to that. Um, So I'm a little sort of unplugged from things already, um, even though I've plan on making this as much of a working vacation as I can. Um, but it was interesting. So we, uh, we listened to this podcast, which I, I got to say, I recommend, uh, my wife's much more into true crime stuff than I am. Um, and I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit, um, when she suggested that we listen to this podcast called, uh, cover up or the cover up that was put out by of all places, people magazine in 2018 about uh, Chappaquiddick. And uh, I was just very skeptical that it wasn't going to be annoying. You know, Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I need to go into any further detail about that. For you youngins who don't know what Chappaquiddick is or was uh, in 1969, uh, not long after Robert Kennedy was assassinated, uh, Teddy Kennedy drove his or a car. Well, I guess it was his car um, off of a small bridge in Chappaquiddick, which is uh, sort of an island off of Martha's Vineyard. There was a young lady named Mary Jo Kopechny in the car. Uh, she drowned. He did not. And the... Um, the circumstances have never really been clarified about what exactly happened. Um, and, uh, uh, and there are some people who think it cost him his chance at being president of the United States. I think that's plausible. Um, I think there were other problems that Teddy had, um, vis-a-vis trying to be president of the United States, but certainly it did enormous damage psychologically, emotionally, and politically to Ted Kennedy and to the Kennedy family. And I don't think they ever really recovered. Um, and anyway, it turns out that the podcast was was shockingly well done and balanced. I mean, there was stuff in there that annoyed me, uh, but um, but it was sort of within normal parameters of being annoyed. Like when you when you got to sort of be fair to both sides, um, the fairness to one side sometimes can be annoying, but that doesn't mean it's not necessary. Uh, it's sort of like a just a part of, you know, sort of way journalism kind of works. But one of the things that was sort of, that just sort of hit me out of the blue with it was this reporter for People Magazine um, basically, real by her own account, used as the Bible for her own investigation, the sort of roadmap, a book called Senatorial Privilege by a guy named Leo DeMoore. And the funny thing about that for me is that 
throughout a big chunk of the end of high school and the beginning of college, um, Leo DeMora would call uh, my house in growing up um, five times a day because my mom was his literary agent. And there was a big lawsuit because Random House uh, dropped, uh, broke their contract, pulled out of their contract with DeMora, with Leo um, because he, um, in Leo's telling, and I think probably in my mom's telling, I haven't talked to her about this in 25 years, um, because Leo basically had the goods that Kennedy was up to no good um, at Chappaquiddick. This is not to say, I don't think anybody credible at this point thinks like Teddy Kennedy deliberately murdered Mary Jo Kopechny or anything like that. It's, it's the the... I think the consensus is, is that if there was any kind of, uh, you know, criminal homicide, it was you know, somewhere around negligent homicide, but no one really knows for sure. Uh, it certainly does sound like he behaved dishonorably. Uh, this podcast makes it pretty clear that he thinks he behaved dishonorably, even though a lot of people in the Kennedy entourage, you know, try, always tried to... Uh, minimize it um and say it was just the critics who were just overreacting and all that kind of stuff apparently um you know whatever he did his mistakes that that, that night plagued him for the rest of his life but um anyway the yeah so random house broke out of its um contract with leo demore and um and leo's perspective and, I, and again i think my mom's perspective because it was actually just way too close to the target about what actually happened in Chappaquiddick. And the muckety mucks at Random House got enormous pressure from um, the Kennedy, you know, what, what Leo called the Kennedy apparatus. And um, anyway, I, I don't want to get deep in the weeds on, on Chappaquiddick itself. Um, but Again, it was really interesting, and I either I I guess I had forgotten. I don't, you know, like it's a different time in my life. But I guess Leo ended up committing suicide, and the podcast at least floats the idea that maybe it was due to the fact that he'd been poisoned. I, I don't know anything about that, but it's definitely true that the sort of Kennedy Mafia did intimidate a lot of people in a lot of ways. Um, and Kennedy Mafia might be a little unfair, just a little, in the sense that I think Kennedy is one of these guys or one of these families that in their day inspired a lot of bad actors rather than actually ordered a lot of bad actors. I'm not saying they didn't order any bad, bad actors, but it's sort of like with Donald Trump. There are a lot, of, a lot of goofballs and losers who do stuff in Trump's name that the left wants to say, you know, were following trump's orders or whatever and it's it's i don't think that's always the case i mean january 6th is a more complicated case but i think you know what i mean so but one of the things that i thought was sort of more in the wheelhouse and worth going over because again we can talk about chapit kodak another time um it was interesting several different people they talked to um or got audio interviews of um said that the word the phrase cover-up was largely a creation of watergate that people didn't use the word cover-up until um the watergate cover-up and i think that's it's it's interesting in the, when the first person when the first person in the thing said it i was like i'm not sure i believe that but then like two or three other you know people independently said it and not just independently, but like independently at places in time, you know, some of these interviews were from like 20 years ago. Um, and I think that's, that's interesting. It's sort of like, you know, I had this conversation with Joshua Katz earlier this week, and I've had it with Jay Nordlinger before. And I think even McWhorter about the word literally in the sense that, uh, I get that people want to change the meaning of the word literally. And I think, and I understand language evolves and all that kind of stuff, but we need a word <laughs> that means what literally, literally means. 
And if we're not going to have the word literal or literally to convey literalness, we need some other word to do that. And I, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. Fine. There's all sorts of, you know, ways in which you can convey through context, whether you mean literally, literally, or literally figuratively. But I still think we need more words that mean, you know, reflective of, of, of the actual meaning of uh, a word or a text and that kind of thing. Anyway, I got to go. I'm going to do some Googling today about it. But like if we didn't have the word, if we didn't use the word cover up until the Watergate era, I'm just kind of curious, what terms did we use for cover ups prior to the Watergate era? I mean, like, presumably, I mean, there's, there's just simply no way that the country of Teapot Dome, right? Um, and all the conspiracy theories of the know nothings um, didn't have a phrase for like political cover up of a scandal. Um, and I just, I'm just kind of, again, I'm sure we had the language for it. I just, I would have assumed, you know, until yesterday that the language for it, it would have often been the word cover up or the phrase cover up. I assume like whitewash was one, um, but I know it's I, I I think that kind of stuff is is sort of fascinating, and I'm I'm just kind of curious, so I will poke around. But if if people have ideas, they can let me know about that as well. Um, what else to talk about? So there's a monster jobs report that came out about 15 minutes before um, I started recording this, and um, I think I'm not in a position to like right right now to, I mean, I'm not in a position to do much right now, but um, to get deep in the weeds on the economic stuff. But I do think that this, this will make a lot of the, uh, why won't they say we're in a recession? It's a recession. It's the R word. They're covering up the fact that we're in a recession. They're denying a recession. It will make that spin a lot harder because, and let's just be fair, it bolsters the case of the Biden administration that even if this was technically or by some definitions of recession, it's it's not a normal recession. Recession might not be the right word for it. Um, I still think they made a mistake in terms of messaging by not just simply conceding the point um, and then spinning it. You know, rather than trying to deny the point by pre-spinning it, uh, I just think it it got more people talking about a recession than they otherwise would. Um, but when you have over five hundred thousand jobs created in the teeth of a recession, it's not a normal recession. Um, and uh, um, probably should leave it there. Um, I wrote last. I got it. When did I write? I guess I wrote this week. It's been a very stressful, weird time for me for reasons we'll get into it later. Um, but um, I wrote earlier this week, what did I write about? Oh, the, 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 the Inflation Reduction Act thing, Bob. And I got to say, I'm just sort of, I remain, I, I think people think I'm, I'm weirdly fixated on this point because I, I can understand why you wouldn't think it's that interesting a point but i guess the th but right, so the, the point of the column i wrote was that you know progressives came down about 90 percent from their their last asking price of 3.5 trillion to um you know three point to, to 300 and something billion uh not counting uh stuff that goes to um deficit reduction and all that hoot nanny and um and all the progressives are hailing this as the the greatest investment in fighting climate change in human in American history. And I think that technically they're right, but I just think it's sort of fascinating how you can come off your position. I mean, Bernie Sanders was arguing, literally arguing, and I mean literally, um, arguing that we needed to spend 
16 trillion dollars on the green new deal and then uh came down to 6 trillion um and then was telling people that was more than enough of a compromise as far as he was concerned but you know was signaling that he would still vote for 3.5 trillion but only because he saw it as a down payment for the kind of spending that we really need and and now you know i don't know i haven't checked to see what bernie himself is saying these days but you know he's going to vote for this and maybe he's going to do it with you know and be pissy about it but all of the people sort of in the green new deal camp all the people on tv and the new york times who are saying how 3.5 trillion was um at you know sort of the minimal amount uh as a down payment to spend are now saying what a historic triumph uh 10% of that is and i'm not I, my point isn't about the hypocrisy thing um and you know and that work and 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 I, my point isn't even really just to simply beat up on democrats and progressives because i think the same point works in reverse for republicans as well republicans were talking about how you know trillions of dollars was way 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 too much and unnecessary and even though they were fine with spending trillions of dollars under trump um and there's you know talking about how the green new deal would kill jobs and all that and then when democrats come down by you know three trillion dollars um on their ask they're saying the same stuff and I'm not saying that there aren't legitimate criticisms of the Inflation Reduction Act. There definitely are. I think it's full of all sorts of gimmicks and BS. Um, but it just, my point is, is, it sort of just shows how the, that the actual substance of, of policy is such a secondary concern. Um, and it's, it's really just sort of the MacGuffin aspect of the theater, right? If, Democrats want this, therefore Republicans oppose that. And even though Democrats have come down massively on their ask, Republicans um, still play the exact same role, you know. And, uh, you know, the MacGuffin thing, you know, MacGuffin in, in film is just the thing that the hero wants. And, you know, Hitchcock would argue that it doesn't really matter what the MacGuffin is. Um, all you have to, all you need is a hero that the audience really wants to succeed and and a reason for wanting the MacGuffin uh um that the audience can accept and so you know the Maltese Falcon is the MacGuffin or I don't think we even do we really know what the MacGuffin actually is in North by Northwest I think there's some sort of famous Hitchcock joke about that um you know my favorite MacGuffin is the briefcase in in um pulp fiction or we just you know just don't know what's in the briefcase we just know that that's the thing that people have to get and um um and in this it's just sort of like if if democrats get a win the hero wins for you know liberals in the mainstream media and progressives and if republicans get a win it's the it and it and the the substance of the win seems to matter so much less and and this was, you know, one of the things that we learned in really the Obama years. Um, you know, the first guy to write about the it, this MacGuffin thing was um, what's his name, Ace of Spades, blog guy who um, sort of lost his mind. But um, uh, but it was really true in the Obama years. It was definitely true in the Trump presidency, where one team just wants the, their hero to put points on the board and the arguments about the actual policy are just seems so secondary. And, um, so you can make perfectly legitimate criticisms of, of the inflation reduction act. I have many, um, and you can make perfectly legitimate arguments in favor of it. But, um, those arguments are just secondary to the, the, just sort of the political theater that everyone, instantaneously buys into and i just think it's i shouldn't be shocked by it given how this is how washington has worked my entire time living in washington but i i sometimes can still be shocked by it so uh i, I guess i should talk about this now um 
the dispatch uh, has a piece up by our own Alec Dent on sort of the young new righties um, in Washington. You should read it. I'm I'm not going to just do a big, you know, I'm not I'm not going to do a point by point summary of the whole thing, but uh, the top line of it is is that uh, there are a bunch of young uh, new call themselves new right. They're sort of the nationalist conservatives or the post liberal conservatives, um, and um, you know, sort of Claremont Institute adjacent and um, uh, sort of Orrin Cast disciples. These are the guys who you know are, are reject the conservatism of William F. Buckley, reject the conservatism of, of, you know, that's commonly called fusionism, you know, free market, limited government, and instead want this more sort of robust, um, you know, right-wing experts uh, know how to do stuff. We can do industrial planning. We can have a managed um, economic system if we can just get our guys um, in the right places. And um, I just want to be really clear. I think the vast majority of it is just unadulterated bullshit. Um, and uh, um, and one of the things. So anyway, so Alec writes about you know this this club called the Cicero Club, and basically it's a Georgetown cocktail party club where um, a bunch of young people, not all members of the New Right, but it's very he- top heavy with the New Right types. Um, get dressed up and have little, you know, discussions and debates and, you know, um, um, and, you know, uh, fawn over each other. And, you know, part of the point of the piece is that there's this profound, you know, sort of funny hypocrisy in it and that these kids claim that the problem, you know, the new right types claim that the, esta- the conservative establishment um, over the last 30 years, um, you know, or what, you know, Tucker says is the libertarians who ran Washington for the last 30 years, that's the Georgetown cocktail party set. And here comes this group of, uh, of earnest young kids, um, holding, you know, lavish Georgetown cocktail parties to denounce the cocktail party set. Oh, it's just so ironic. Um, and Alec gets into get, has some great detail. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that's going to get the most attention probably is former dispatch intern, uh, currently uh, uh, writing fellow. I don't know what know what exact title is at NR. Nate Hockman did something that he admits was very stupid, and I'm not going to disagree with him on that. He did some sort of online Twitter. Um, uh, audio event, right? It's called Twitter Conversations or something. And uh, Nick Fuentes, a neo-Nazi scumbag, um, uh, called in, in part because I guess the thing was set up to be a conversation about why the sort of hard alt-right and the Fuentes crowd, what often called groipers, um, shouldn't be part of the conservative movement. And... Um, Nate's explanation for what he did was that it was too clever by half. He was trying to sort of entice Fuentes to say more and to engage more. Um, and But the way he did that was by basically lavishing praise on Fuentes and agreeing with him or implicitly sounding, sounding like he was implicitly agreeing with Fuentes on the substance, um, but just disagreeing with him on tactics. And again... Uh, a lot of people throw around phrases like white supremacist um, too glibly. Um, obviously, for my tastes, I think a lot of like the Ibram Kendi anti-racism stuff is uh, at at minimum wildly exaggerated and overwrought. And you know, the 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 wrong around phrases like white supremacy uh, make things worse. But Fuentes is a white supremacist. Um, he's a 
you know, a Holocaust denying um, losers, avowed sort of one of these insole, you know, celibate types, or at least that's my understanding. Maybe I got that wrong, but that seems to be the going talk about him. Um, he's a little Hitler youth scumbag. And, um, and Nate engages him, you know, with respect and on the merits and the thing was recorded and that audio has been going around and, and we got, and Alec got a hold of it and, um, and, you know, not knowing anything else, I'll take Nate totally at his word that, uh, he just made a stupid mistake and it's already cost him like a fellowship and some other things. Um, but I think, you know, the point I want to make without beating up on Nate, um, is that, Oh, a couple points I want to make. But the first one is um, a popular front, popular front politics, right? Which is this idea that um, different factions, different segments of uh, a broad coalition should all uni unite in solidarity against the common enemy, right? So there were popular fronts against Nazis. There were popular fronts against various dictators over time. Popular front stuff the logic of the popular front was often um no enemies to my left right so like you know the left no one on the left should fight amongst ourselves we have to have um a united phalanx against uh the forces of evil to our right and i have always hated popular front politics uh this used to be a very mainstream view on the american right that popular front politics were a source of intellectual and moral corruption. Um, obviously, people said it more often about the left because it's always easy to point out the intellectual and moral corruption of the people that you most disagree with. But it was also basically understood that it was morally and intellectually corrupt on the right as well, which is why William F. Buckley went to such great pains to say the Birchers are not part of the broad coalition of the right. Um, took similar steps with the Randians. You can disagree with that or not. But the point is, is that one of the things I've always loved dearly about National Review and still love about National Review is that it makes these distinctions and says there are some groups that belong in our coalition and there are some groups that cannot be permitted in it. And um, that all fell apart. I shouldn't say it all fell apart. That all got horribly wounded and weakened in 2015 and 2016, where... Uh, Steve Bannon and the Breitbart crowd, not Breitbart himself, of course, he had been, he had passed away years earlier. Um, uh, the Milo Yiannopoulos and all those bozos, um, they saw in the quote unquote alt right, uh, you know, energy and vigor and youthful enthusiasm. And they wanted to make it part of the conservative coalition. And, um, you know, Bannon even said that he wanted the alt-right, uh, he wanted, the, wanted Breitbart to be the platform for the alt-right. And this is one of the reasons why I've so despised Bannon over the last few years is because say what you will about, um, about Andrew Breitbart. And, you know, I love the guy, but he was, he was not exactly without flaw. But one of the reasons why he was such a righteous guy on this stuff is because he so fundamentally resented the idea that the left could call him racist with impunity. He took it deeply personally to be called a racist. And so when Bannon wanted to turn over this, the, the media empire that bears Andrew's name um, to make it the foremost platform for the alt-right, I thought it was just a grotesque betrayal. And, um, you know, giving people, some people the benefit of the doubt in the early, in the early days of, you know, in 2015 and 2016, what counted for the alt-right was in dispute. Um, I've mentioned it here before, but I had a big argument with Hugh Hewitt, who sincerely believed that the alt-right were just sort of disaffected tea partiers and that they needed to be sort of brought back into the fold. Um, and I, my position was, no, look at Look at what the people who call themselves the alt-right actually think, right? Look at the people who embrace the term. Um, 
look at the people who like write for was it American Renaissance and V Dare and these various um, fever swamp places. Um, they're not disaffected tea partiers. They're racists, and they're, and they're they're serious racists. They take it they take their racism seriously, and um, and while not all of the alt right crowd was into um, barraging me with um, Holocaust jokes and um, talk about putting me and my family or uh, my friends in in the gas chamber and all of these kinds of things. Um, the general position of the alt-right, particularly the folks writing for Breitbart, was that stuff is just funny and fair game in politics. And um, I just got to say, you know, as just a, a sort of as a, as, an, as a personal thing, um, if you either believe that, you know, I should be sent to Auschwitz or that it would be better if everybody named Goldberg was sent to Auschwitz, um, that um, that, that Jews are, um, a force for evil that need to be exterminated or ghettoized or whatever. Um, I'm not going to want to hang out and I'm not going to want to hang out or, or take seriously people who say I'm the one at fault for not lightening up. I mean, it is amazing to me how everybody thinks that oh, I shouldn't say everybody how so many people on the right uh, just cavalierly say how fine it is that people like Pete Meyer and Liz Cheney, um, uh, they're beyond the pale and it's totally fine for them to be completely and totally ostracized on the right. They have no place in the Republican Party. They're not loyal members of the coalition. Um, but then when you say, okay, so Paul Gosar and, um, you know, uh, these others and or Lauren Bobbert or, or Marjorie Taylor green. Um, when you say that they shouldn't be on the, you know, part people in good standing on the right, they, they roll their eyes at you and they're like, why are you making such a big deal? You know, we need, you know, it's a diverse party and they're entertaining and blah, 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 blah. And you know, my, I have a, I have a long, complicated intellectual, historically grounded response to all of that. Um, but I'll just cut the final sentence of it. Screw you, right? If, if, if you're going to tell me that like people who are perfectly fine with conspiracy theorists, with Jewish space laser people, um, with Christian nationalists, that those people are perfectly welcome within the broad coalition of the right, but people who are like really offended by January 6th aren't, um, if you're going to tell me that 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 I'm the I'm the thin-skinned one for making a big deal about Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites, um, but I'm also like I need to lighten up about um, and I need to lighten up about those guys. But um, but it's totally fair to sort of uh, ostracize and demonize people like Liz Cheney. You know, the cognitive dissonance is with you. Um, my positions are entirely defensible and correct. And, um, and you're just not. And so like when Nate in his thing and in, in this quote, his objection, and again, I'll take him as word that he's play acting, but it mirrors a position held by a lot of people. Um, Nate says, if, if you are going to insist on a political coalition that is strictly organized around white identity at the exclusion of other people, that might be allies in the electoral vote, you're going to lose because that kind of politics is no longer viable in America. Maybe it would be ideal if it were, but if you are running a political campaign, a political strategy around activating white identity as an organizing principle of your politics, you're going to lose. I respect some of what you're doing, but this fundamentally is why I was saying earlier, I don't think you're a serious political operator because the kinds of politics that you are advocating is disconnected from the reality of what America is in 2021. It's just not going to work. Now, as a matter of political analysis, I agree with Nate when he tells a white supremacist Nazi twerp these things. Um, but you kind of need to have some moral outrage about the idea of 
a movement launching its politics around white identity and white supremacy um um too you know it's just some things just should simply be beyond the pale for moral grounds not merely prudential grounds i don't want to be you know like the 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 criticism of 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 nazi or nazi adjacent politics isn't that they are impractical it's that they're immoral and there is just this bizarre sense of power worship that's flittering around on the right particularly among young people that seems to think that this this movement has legs and is going to go someplace and that they should at least if not hitch a ride to it stay in its good graces and i think it's morally grotesque and it's but it's also just it's also just really really stupid and that's the thing about a lot of this stuff that i just find so amazing and i was thinking maybe writing about this if i have time today um almost all of this stuff that people are talking about about you know this new politics and this new right i've yet to see a single new idea in any of it you know, oh, industrial planning, no one's ever thought of that before. Nationalism, huh, no one's ever thought of that before. Uh, strongmen, you know, last week I dinged the, the chairman of the board of Claremont for this sort of just obsequious, grotesque fanboying over strongmen and Donald Trump. Um, and the idea of like, we need manly men and strong men. Yeah, that's a new idea. None of these ideas are new. Even the sort of cutesy hipster, um, uh, you know, ideas about, um, you know, like part of the things that's in Alex's piece is all about, um, you know, this guy from someplace called American Moment, um, you know, gushes about the need to create new conservative culture new conservative elites in washington who are um who are untainted by washington but work in washington and that they need to be um you know a separate culture i cannot begin to tell you how old this friggin idea is i mean i was writing the, one of the pieces that i got that i i tricked my wife into to ultimately marrying me was i wrote a piece for the wall street journal almost three decades ago about this very sort of fad in Washington in the early nineties, when I was the age of these, these 20 something kids, um, you know, the weekly standard was running pieces about how we need a sort of new alternative conservative culture and a hipster culture. And we'll wear fedoras and smoke cigars and yada, yada, yada. Um, and I, and I'm sure that this existed in Washington in the 1960s and maybe in, almost early in the 1930s. Although, I mean, again, the sociology of Washington was a little different back then. But this, I, you know, all of this stuff about new alternative um, uh, ways that rejecting the old politics, uh, all of the Sorabamari post-liberal Catholic, theo, the, you know, the, theocracy stuff, all of this stuff is old. And it's been hashed over and chewed over. And just because a whole bunch of people are ignorant of it doesn't make it new. Um, it's all, it just, you know, even, even the anti cocktail party thing is over a half century old. I mean, Richard Nixon used to rail against the Georgetown cocktail party set. Um, and, and just to be clear, like I don't go to Georgetown cocktail parties. The last Georgetown cocktail party I went to was one I threw for myself, um, for my 50th, I should say, actually my wife threw it for me, um, for my 50th birthday. And, um, it's just, you know, like, and all of these ideas that pop up in, in Alex's piece, which again, you should read, um, they all feel so old to me, um, because this is, this is just, this is sort of like rite of passage stuff for 20 somethings in Washington. I did like, there's this, um, uh, funny bit where, he says, all right, so this is Alec writing. He says, the solution, according to Hockman, is a return to an elite culture from even further in the past in which he claims families like the Rockefellers lived in a way that was more in touch with middle America than today's elites do. And then Nate says, the old ruling class, like the Rockefellers in that kind of era, the people that are pejoratively, pejoratively described as 
the robber barons, the food that they would eat was basically the food that people in America would eat. They might have nicer steaks or something or whatever, but there actually is a completely different cuisine now. And then uh, Alec notes, the Rocker family, Rockefeller family is an interesting one to cite. John D. Rockefeller's diet was so unique, it got a write-up in the New York Times when he died. The vegetables that made up 75% of his diet were shipped from across the globe or grown in gardens on his various estates. The article noted, quote, the lamb that was made into broths and soups for him was grown on his own places. He, had also, he also produced on his estates the fresh milk he drank in order to be assured of its purity and quality. Uh, this piece was published in 1937 during the Great Depression. I mean, Alec doesn't get into the weeds on this point, but um, like this, the, the class analysis behind all of this is very, very strange because the people he's actually talking about um, who have eat all of these different cuisines aren't the super wealthy um, necessarily. It's it's the upper middle class striving members of the meritocracy who are sort of the opposite numbers on the sort of cultural left. I mean, the equivalent of John Rock, John D. Rockefeller doesn't shop at Whole Foods and, you know, eat, you know, and, and buy special quinoa. Um, he might have a private chef, he might not, but um, like the cuisine of the actual super elite of like the Rockefellers, um, I would bet is more like a normal Americans today than it was a hundred years ago. And I could be letting anecdote drive my thinking on this, but I know, you know, a couple billionaires and I've, you know, I've seen how they eat and, um, they eat, you know, cheeseburgers and nachos and normal food and have bagels and cream cheese or whatever for breakfast. Um, the 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 people who have this alternative cuisine are the sort of striving bourgeois intelligentsia, um, not the super rich. But this is a huge segue from you know the, the the main point, which is that I just I find the whole brouhaha over the new right to be just simply successful marketing for a bunch of striving young um careerists who wanted um replace the existing careerists or you know elite's not even the right word um just the people a couple rungs above them on the ladder they want to um take their places and so it's very analogous to sort of my point about how so much of the woke stuff on the left is um, a careerist uh, elite ideology play um, to get rid of the Gen X and baby boomer management and take their place. And it's a way to weaponize stuff that liberals care about, you know, calling people racist, saying you're insufficiently committed to the revolution or the cause or whatever as a way to you know, personally advance and dethrone the people above you. And this is sort of the, uh, the sort of the mirror image of it on the right, where you have all of these young right-wingers claiming to be representing some new idea whose time has come, and it's all horse crap. Um, none of the ideas are particularly new. I mean, some of them, you know, you, you can debate, the specific merits of this or that idea, but um, it's not a new ideology. It's not a new perspective. It's basically just a bunch of arguments that um, that a lot of you know conservatives my age thought we were never going to have to have again on the right, um, because usually the, the sort of case for industrial planning and enlightened experts who will impose their values and their will on the economy. Um, the people who know how to plan uh, to a fare thee well, those kinds of arguments were made by the left and the right was for a free market. And, um, uh, and now those arguments are made, you know, in a bipartisan way on the right too. Uh, and they don't become more persuasive just because 
they come from right wingers. They actually become less persuasive because when they come from right wingers. Um, and so anyway, it's just, it's all so exasperating and, um, you know, it makes me feel all the more like a curmudgeon because it's just so, it's so transparent to me that there's, um, so much less than meets the eye in it. But the, the left always loves, I've been making this point for 20 years. Um, I, the left, or at least the sort of the mainstream, mainstream media liberals always love the, to focus attention on, uh, fringe right-wing groups, scary new ideas coming from the right, or when the right is in power, like when there were Republicans in power, they love to pay attention to um, whatever faction is trying to displace them. So when the Bushies were in charge, uh, the New York Times was talking about how Rand Paul was the most interesting man in politics and that the libertarian populism was going to take neoconservatism's place. Um, uh, this is a very, very old pattern i guess i'm kind of done um given what i've just been talking about for the last few minutes uh i think you can probably guess what i think of victor orban speaking at cpac um uh again you can you can like victor orban you can hate victor orban you can uh you can claim that victor orban is being horribly misrepresented by the mainstream media um, and all that, but don't tell me that Victor Orban's ideas are new. Um, don't tell me that like, this is like some pathbreaking new way of looking at the world that no one's considered before. Um, you know, this is an ultimately whether, whether or not he's, you know, the, the Nazi, I don't think he's a Nazi, but, uh, whether he's the Nazi, his biggest detractors think he is, or if he is the, um, autocrat uh and uh, anti-liberal anti-democratic uh you know strongish man that other people say he is which i i think is probably far closer to the truth um or whether he's just sort of a you know a, a politician who's figured out how to like hold on to power by picking the right enemies um none of that stuff is new none of it is particularly interesting um, you know, again, like treating Hungary like it is, um, the sort of best practices model for, um, the United States is just so strange to me. It's a landlocked country of what, like 10 million people, um, that's poor and, uh, shrinking <laughs> and, um, um, and quaint, I mean, beautiful. I've been to Budapest. Budapest is lovely. And I, you know, and like I, I know a lot of, I've known a lot of Hungarians in my time and, uh, you know, they're interesting people and, and, and all that. But like this idea that somehow if we could just in a country of 332 million people, um, that we should model ourselves on Hungary is just so stupid and weird. And it's a, just another example of of using ideas as arguments to sort of uh, climb out, you know, to get noticed, to have your name ring out, to um, have an idea that you can, you know, fall in love with and and think that you're you have access to, you know, some sort of Gnostic revelation or whatever. Reality is, there just aren't a lot of new ideas. The last really huge i mean as a matter of philosophical stuff the last really huge and important new idea was the one that this country was founded on and we still haven't found a better one and it was radical and it was different and it broke with the way human beings understood themselves in the world for the preceding couple hundred thousand years and it was glorious and it pulled humanity out of poverty and it expanded human liberty and it, it, it made it conceivable that we will reach for the stars one day and it let more people decide how they wanted to live than any time in all of human history by orders of magnitude. And people are ungrateful about it. And they nurture this ingratitude about it. They nurture this resentment of it. 
I'm sure some of them are sincere about it. I'm sure even more think they're sincere about it, even though there's a lot of motivated reasoning. But at the grand level, to me, it's a career strategy. Um, it's a way of, of pandering to a moment and saying that it's, you know, um, it's a way of pandering to a moment and, and, and claiming some sort of, you know, if not democratic legitimacy, then some sort of, sort of, you know, fundamental authenticity as you, as you connect with, with real America, even as you have your canapes, um, wearing, you know, tuxedos at some Georgetown soiree while denouncing other people at the soiree across the street for being sellouts. Um, it's just all so much posing in, in, in theater. And I guess that's the theme of the day is just like, I'm, I'm just so freaking tired of the theater of, of it all. Anyway, I apologize for the rambling stuff. I hope it made sense. Um, I'm very much looking forward to spending some quality time with family and dogs in Maine, although I, it's already getting hot, which bums me out. And um, I'll talk to you next week. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.